So we're going to tackle Ezekiel chapter 18, and we'll do it in two parts. So today is Ezekiel 18, verses 1 to 18. Repent and turn from all your wrongdoings, so that guilt and punishment will not be your ruin. So that's our title for today and for next week. And as I said, we'll do the first half this week and finish it off next week. It's pretty full on, this chapter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the truth we're going to learn today, Lord. You're the creator, owner. All souls are mine, you declare. And we are all accountable to you. And the soul who sins shall die, but the soul who turns and repents shall live. And we thank you for that free choice that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's do a memory verse together. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Awesome. So last week, Chapter 17 in Ezekiel, we saw Israel's unfaithfulness and treachery towards Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and also God. And in contrast to that, we saw grace, God's faithfulness and loyalty to his covenant people, despite their unfaithfulness towards him. And just when Israel could go no lower, when it had almost ceased being a nation, God promised to one day make them the world superpower, with the Messiah, the tender one, as he is called in verse 22, leading the nation during the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now, did Israel do anything to deserve this privilege? To be chosen to be the world superpower that Jesus will use to rule and reign from or with? Of course not. It's all grace. So, same with our salvation, it's all grace. Now, the conclusion concerning Israel was, once God's chosen people, always God's chosen people. Once God makes a promise, he will keep it. And the conclusion concerning believers today is parallel to that. Once a child of God, always a child of God. So, moving on to this week, chapter 18. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from chapter 18, which gives you the big picture of what it's saying. So verses 4 and then 30 through 32. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul who sins shall die. And then moving on to verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart, and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. Now do you think that he's talking about physical death or spiritual death there? Spiritual, yeah. Eternal death, eternal life. So what we see in this chapter is that every person has free choice whether to turn, repent and live, or continue living in sin and die. We can't blame our choices on our circumstances or upbringing. Each of us must make the choice to repent because if we don't, 
There is no doubt that sin will be our ruin, both in this life and the next. So let's read verses 1 through 18. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. Now, a bit of context here. We have a righteous man. We have the son of a righteous man who goes bad. And then we have the grandson of the wicked man who makes a good choice and lives a righteous life. So now we go to the son who chooses wickedness. Verse 10. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of these duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now we go to the third example. The wicked father has a son who sees what his father has done and chooses righteousness. Verse 14. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So there's this proverb going on, and God here refutes this proverb. So I'll just read verses 1 to 3, then we'll explain what this proverb is and why it's wrong. So a false proverb, a false doctrine, or false teaching is refuted. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. So, what does it mean, this proverb? Well, it goes something like this. It was our parents, the previous generation, who sinned against God. And that's what it means when it uses this phrase, eaten sour grapes. But we are the ones being punished. 
We are the ones with the teeth set on edge, you know, with a sour taste in your mouth. Therefore, God is unfair, both in not punishing the previous generation and in punishing the current generation. So basically the people of Judah were saying that if the parents had sinned, eaten sour grapes, then they should be the ones who were punished, the teeth set on edge. So to the people of Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day, it seemed that they were innocent and were being punished for the sins of their fathers. That means the previous generation committed. So you can imagine why they would think this way. I mean, you think about what was happening to them. Josiah fought the Egyptians, and from that point on, they had become a vassal state. And they think, well, that didn't happen to the previous generation. But, you know what? They thought that they were okay. In their own eyes, they seemed like they're fairly good people. But what had God revealed about them? Their generation was even worse than Sodom, and their sins made the Gentiles blush. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting it, okay? So the question is, what is the effect of such wrong thinking and bad doctrine or teaching that was being taught by the ungodly priests, leaders, and false prophets? So this is the false teaching that it was not our fault, we're being punished for something we didn't do. So there's a, a serious consequence to this. I've got three quotes which help explain it. The proverb reflects a materialistic fatalism, a resignation to immutable cosmic rules of cause and effect, an embittered paralysis of the soul that has left the exiles without hope and without God. And I've added there, as you would expect one to feel if they believed that they were being punished for someone else's sins. Yeah? And that quote was by Block. Another one from Taylor. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel saw this as a pernicious, that means having a harmful effect, so a pernicious doctrine, because it inevitably led to a spirit of fatalism and irresponsibility. If the fault could really be laid at the door of a previous generation, those on whom the judgment was falling could reasonably shrug off any sense of sin and accuse God of injustice. You see where this is going? See where this proverb is such a bad doctrine? And the third quote is from Morgan. He says, Men are still using this proverb, and so using it as to show that they think the saying is true. As a matter of fact, no saying more false was ever coined. It is based upon a one-sided philosophy of heredity. The proverb is at once an attempt to escape from responsibility for sin, and a protest against punishment. So I've added there, I'm being punished for something that I didn't do. So notice what he says there. The proverb is at once an attempt to escape from responsibility for sin and a protest against punishment. So, who's heard of generational curses? So this is basically the Old Testament version of this modern false teaching of generational curses. So let's have a look at that. This is an application on this proverb. So the false teaching or understanding of generational curses is where people believe that, for example, if the father is a drunkard, then the son will also be a drunkard. 
And this comes from a misunderstanding of Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, which is the second commandment, and Numbers 14, 18. We'll read those in a bit. And those who have been tripped up by this false doctrine have ended up reacting in the same way as the nation of Judah did in Ezekiel's day. They basically say this, I can't help my sin. They're trying to escape their responsibility. It's my parents' fault. So basically, I can't help it. It's all my parents' fault. And they're excusing their sin. So let's read those scriptures and find out how they are misinterpreted. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, it says, You shall not make yourself a carved image. And then skipping down a bit. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting or punishing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Notice that, of those who hate me. Verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And I've added, God would much rather show mercy than have to judge people. And Numbers 14, 18, another one people misuse. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay. So, notice there, it says, by no means clears the guilty. So the context of this is those who have not repented, they are still guilty, and therefore, they also will be punished just like their fathers were. Does that make sense? It's not the innocent that are being punished, it's the guilty. And it's the same thing back in Exodus chapter 20. He will visit or punish the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of who? Of those who hate me, of those who continue in the sin. They will suffer the same punishment as the fathers if they continue in the sin. It's kind of common sense. Feinberg or Feinberg has this quote regarding the love me and the hate me in Exodus 20 verse 6. It seems those who quoted this wicked proverb and hoped to accuse God by it found refuge in twisting Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6. They had failed, as many do today, to see the force of the words hate me and love me. Thus, if they individually love God, they could not be suffering the penalty of their father's sins. Can you see that? If they individually love God, if they themselves love God and were living a life that pleases Him, then they could not be suffering the penalty of their father's sins because the punishment is only for those who are still in rebellion against God, not for those who love Him. I use that quote from Feinberg because of what he says, Thus, if they individually love God, they could not be suffering the penalty of their father's sins. And why not? Because that would be unjust. God doesn't punish the innocent, ever. He doesn't punish the innocent, and he doesn't let the guilty go free. It's completely against his righteous nature and being a a just judge. Now, a cumulative disaster when nations, not individuals, continue in sin. So there is actually a generational curse, but it's not against individuals It's for a nation who doesn't repent. So there is a sense in which there is a generational curse, but again, it's not for individuals, it's for a nation. 
and we'll have a look at this now. Quote from Wright, The second commandment, Exodus 25 and 6, had spoken of the cumulative disaster that mounts up when generation after generation refuses to repent. This is also the teaching of Jesus Christ in Matthew 23. Ezekiel asserts that each generation is responsible for breaking the evil tradition or for maintaining the good one. And this is the main point in the rest of the chapter. So, let's have a look at what Jesus said about this generational curse upon the nation of Israel. And yes, it did build up and there was a generational curse because they refused to repent. So we're going to read Matthew 23, verses 29 to 39. And this is a biblical example of a generational curse on a national level, not individual. So he says, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you, notice this, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Notice he puts that unto them. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, had the Jewish leaders repented? of their pride and rebellion against God? In Jesus' day, had they repented? No. What did they end up doing? Crucifying the Messiah. Yeah? They were guilty of the same sins as the fathers. In fact, they were more guilty than their fathers. They just didn't kill the servants, they killed the son. Now, it's a Cumulative judgment on a national level, not an individual level. If any one of those leaders individually did choose to repent, what would happen? Would they still be punished? No. Would they receive God's forgiveness on a personal level? Absolutely, yeah. So many of those leaders did actually repent and receive God's gracious forgiveness. And Nicodemus is a prime example. So the second cumulative disaster or generational curse, I believe, applies to today's nations with all the murder, abortion, violence, sexual perversion, lies, deception, disrespect of authority, and the general godlessness we see in our society today. So instead of responding 
with repentance and humility like the people of Nineveh did when Jonah preached to them. Remember what he said? Repent, or 40 days you'll be destroyed. Today's nations are only getting all the more wicked as we continue to harden ourselves against the truth of God's word. Therefore, just like the nation of Judah was doing, we are making ourselves more and more ripe for judgment. And I believe that that will come, that judgment will come in the form of the seven year tribulation when God will judge this world for its evil. So, hopefully, now we can understand the proper biblical understanding of generational curses. They apply to nations and not individuals. Concerning individuals, God says, All souls are mine, and the soul who sins shall die. And the rest of chapter 18 is a point by point rebuttal of individual generational curses and we'll look at that more as we go now where does this thing about generational curses come from well i looked up got questions and i was astounded at the people who believe this how they support their theory so i'm just going to read this quote Some deliverance ministries and charismatic groups teach the existence of hereditary spirits, also called generational spirits or familial spirits. These entities are thought to be evil spirits that attach themselves to a particular family and harass them through multiple generations. They are demons inherited from one's ancestors. So before I continue, I just want to point out this is a false doctrine. Those who teach the existence of hereditary spirits consider them the source of various sins such as pride, lust, perversion, anger, rebellion, fear and addiction. Generational or hereditary spirits are blamed for generational curses that result in poverty, sickness, disease, confusion, failure and even death. According to the concept of generational spirits, a man struggles with anger issues because he is being influenced by an angered demon. The same demon who provoked his father and grandfather to anger. A woman who struggles with depression is being oppressed by a depression demon that was invited into the family by the sin of an ancestor, one who practiced witchcraft perhaps. Once attached to the family, the demon causes trouble down the lineage. Usually, deliverance ministries recommend that a person renounce the generational spirits and all the curses his or her family is under, binding and rebuking all the demons, ordering sickness away, etc. This must be done out loud so the demons can hear the rebuke. The idea is that one must cast out all the demons and break all packs with the devil made by ancestors. Only then is one free to grow spiritually in Christ. The idea of hereditary spirits or generational spirits has more in common with paganism than it does with the Bible. Neo-pagans and Wiccans readily admit a belief in generational curses, demons that attach themselves to a certain family, and the idea that occult power can be passed down through one's family line. In paganism, breaking a generational curse often involves working with one's dead ancestors. The teaching of generational spirits has no biblical foundation. Some try to defend a belief in generational spirits by pointing to passages such as Deuteronomy 5.9. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. However, it's important to note that this passage, 
and others such as Exodus 20 verse 5 and Numbers 14 and 18, does not mention any spirits. We might call God's punishment here a generational curse, but the text references no generational or hereditary spirit. God was disciplining the rebellious in Israel, but demons are not said to be involved. The effects of sin, specifically idolatry in Deuteronomy 5, are naturally passed down from one generation to the next. God's punishment of someone's children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren has nothing to do with familial demons and everything to do with the consequence of bad choices that affect others in the family. Any type of sinful choice can possibly impact several generations of one's offspring and cause much suffering. Further, when a father has a sinful lifestyle, his children are likely to practice the same sinful lifestyle. Implied in the warning of Exodus 20 verse 5 is the fact that children will choose to repeat the sins of their fathers. God promises to punish the sin to the third or fourth generation because those generations are committing the same sins their fathers did. But nothing in the Mosaic law suggests a demon attaching itself to a family. And that's from gotquestions.org. So, were you guys aware that that's what those deliverance ministries are talking about? That's their justification for it? Yeah. So, be aware of this generational curse thing. Yes, there is a generational curse on an individual level. If the person continues in the same sin as a father, they will experience the same punishment as the father. But it's their choice, and it's not because of a demon making them do it. It's their free choice. We'll get into that today. Now, another application here. Does experiencing the negative consequences of someone else's sin mean I am being punished for their sin? Now, if my father's a drunk, I'm going to suffer because of my father's sins. But that's not the same thing as being punished by God for my father's sin. Okay? Rather, I'm just experiencing the negative effects or consequences which are the result of my father's sin. Okay? Now, on an everyday level, we experience this all the time. We are always continuously negatively affected by other people's sins. Their lies, their thoughtlessness, their selfishness, you know. But that's not God punishing me for their sin. That's just me experiencing the consequences of their sin. It's like a, a ripple effect, if you know what I mean. So, if those children, like the children of the drunkard parent, if those children make a conscious choice to ignore the plain warning in front of them that this is the path, life and misery of a drunkard and instead choose to become a drunkard then they will suffer the same consequences of sin as a drunkard father because they have chosen to love sin and hate God and we're talking about eternal life here and they will have to give an account of their life to God for all the times they disobeyed God and all the times their sinful behaviour affected those around them then they will be punished by God for eternity. Whereas the person who looks at their drunkard father's lifestyle and wisely avoids it, and that may take time to turn away from that sin, they have chosen to hate the sin and love God instead. And so they will experience God's blessing instead eternally. Yeah. Now, this whole thing, this passage, it may sound like works-based salvation, 
but it's not. We'll get into it, especially at the end, as application. So we're not promoting works-based salvation, but rather the person who is saved will produce over time the fruits of righteousness as they are transformed into the image of Christ. And Philippians 1.11 says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice it's a fruit, yeah? We don't produce fruit ourselves. It's something God does in us. It's something that happens as we abide in Christ. And as I said, we'll get into that at the end in more depth. So let's get into the passage, verse 4. The answer to the false proverb, and the proverb was that the fathers ate the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, like the fathers did the sin and the children being punished for it. Let's see what God says. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So what's he saying? It's personal responsibility. So when it says, behold, all souls are mine, this is a really important principle for us to understand. All souls belong to God. The soul of the Father and the soul of the Son. Why? Because he's the creator owner. He made us, he owns us, therefore he has authority over us. And therefore we are fully accountable to him. And therefore Every guilty person will be judged. None will escape. Now, again, as we've already talked about a little bit before, is God referring only to physical death or eternal death? There's a quote here from David Guzik. Some believe that Ezekiel only dealt with physical life or death in these passages. The problem with this is that surely there were relatively good and innocent people who physically died in the judgment that came upon Jerusalem and Judea. The book of Job and all our personal experience teach us that sometimes the wicked prosper in this life and the righteous suffer. Ezekiel must have the eternal life and death of people primarily in mind. So remember that our ultimate judgment, the punishment will come in the next life. Because you think about some of the rich people who are getting away with murder, literally, you know. They're not getting punished by God here, but God will catch up with them. So now we get on to the rest of the verses, verses 5 through 18. And there's three examples that demonstrate our freedom of choice to choose good or evil. Now, God uses three different scenarios or examples to make his point, which historically represent or could represent Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah. So, the first example is that of a righteous man, and that could represent Hezekiah, and that's verses 5 to 9. The next example is Hezekiah's wicked son, Manasseh, in verses 10 through 13. And then the third example is Manasseh's righteous grandson, Josiah. So this would be something that the people would be able to look back historically and say, yeah, yeah, there was a good king, and he had a bad son who became king, and he was a bad king, but then he had a son who became a good king. And so they could see that it's all about personal responsibility. So the first one, 
verses 5 to 9, the promise of life to the righteous man. And this probably based on Hezekiah. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury or taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. So verses 5 and 9, it says, just putting those together, but if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, he is just, he shall surely live. So what does verse 4 say? What's the contrast? The soul who sins shall die. But here in verses 5 to 9 it says, But the soul who is just shall live. So again, this indicates, it's a strong indication, it's referring to eternal life and eternal death. So what does a just man who does what is lawful and right look like? And this is a good application for ourselves, right? So we can apply this to ourselves if we really are a Christian with a new heart and new desires then we should be displaying similar character traits to a greater and greater extent as we grow and mature in Christ. So let's have a look at these character traits that God has given to describe a righteous or just man. And then we can see how they apply to us in our context. So verse 6, it says, If he has not eaten on the mountains. So this refers to the high places or places of pagan worship. They would eat their meals, the food that are being sacrificed to idols. And what's this a picture of? Well, fellowship and enjoyment of this world system. So a picture of fellowship with and enjoyment of this world system. So we don't want to do that. It continues, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols. He does not raise high, exalt, or have a longing for the idols that the rest of the nation or the world worshipped. Instead, the man of God lifts up his eyes to God and exalts and longs for God and the things of God. So the application here is that the man of God does not love the things or idols of the world and therefore does not make himself an enemy of God. James 4.4 4. So, what are you lifting your eyes up to? The just man whose heart is set on loving God, generally speaking, will not lift up his eyes to idols. He will not be worshipping those things. Verse 6, nor defiled his neighbor's wife. Sexual purity is a mark of the man and woman of God, reserving sex for the bond of marriage. And nor approached a woman during her impurity. And in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 31, it describes the law of ritual purity where a woman was considered unclean for the duration of her period and seven days after her period. And verse 7, if he has not oppressed anyone, and basically Deuteronomy 24 verses 14 and 15 instructs the Jews not to oppress the poor by holding back their wages but rather give him his wages the same day so that he can buy food. So imagine you're working hard and you're a poor man, you've got no spare cash, 
you want those wages today so you can buy your food for today. But has restored to the poor debtor his pledge. So when you got a loan, you've got to put up collateral, right? And the collateral or the pledge that they would have back then, if you're a poor man, the only thing of value that you would have is your thick coat, you know, your outer garment, which you use at night to keep yourself warm. So the poor man has given this as collateral for his loan, then the merciful thing to do is to give it back to the poor person at night so they can keep warm at night. And so the application for us is that the man of God should look for ways to show mercy to those around us. We should be merciful people. Now, verse 7, He has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. So the man of God does not steal, but rather seeks to give generously. You can see Ephesians 4.28. Verse 8, He has not exacted usury nor taken increase. So, if you're a Jew, you could charge interest on money you lent out, but only to foreigners, never ever to other Jews. Now what would happen is the rich Jews would ignore this law and they would lend money at high interest rates to the poor and the poor would get stuck in this vicious cycle where they could never pay it back. So the man of God, the application for us, the man of God obeys God's commands regarding financial dealings with others and honours God with his money. He's not greedy. Verse 8, but has withdrawn his hand, repented. That means literally repented from iniquity, which is perversity, injustice, dishonesty, depravity, and wickedness. So, again, withdrawn in the Hebrew literally means to have turned around or repented. So the man of God has repented and continues to repent of his sin, any perversity, injustice, dishonesty, depravity, and wickedness. So that's an important one. That's what should characterize the man of God. And executed true judgment or justice between man and man. So we want to be just and righteous in our dealings with and between others. So no favoritism or partiality. And you can see James 2, 1 to 9 about that. Verse 9, if he has walked. Now that means to go after, to follow or pursue Okay, so if he has walked in my statutes and kept, that means to watch over or guard my judgments faithfully. So the person who is a just and righteous man will what? They will pursue, follow and go after righteousness. Doing what God wants. What's the summary of the law? I love God and love others, right? What does Jesus say for us? What is the new commandment? Love each other as I have loved you, and you should be known as disciples by your love one for another. So basically, the whole thing about living a godly life is that we do things which bless other people. A lot of these things are very practical. We want to be merciful, generous, kind people. Now, Verse 9, he is just. Now, in the Hebrew, it's not guilty, innocent, or in the right. Okay, So this just man is not just someone who does good things. This just man is, in God's eyes, not guilty, innocent, and in the right. 
he shall surely live. So the person who loves God, who is in relationship with God, will live a life that pleases God. That's what it means. It's that simple. So back then, by faith, they look forward to the promised Saviour that would one day come and take away the sins of the world. So even back then, they had to understand their sinfulness. And they did. Why? Because of the sacrifices. Every time they offered a sacrifice, what did it remind them of? My sin cost this animal its life. My sin is going to cost a saviour his life. Thank you, God, for providing the saviour for me. I know that he's going to come one day. And so those who understood their sinfulness and trusted in the coming saviour were full of appreciation of what God was going to do for them and therefore willingly obeyed him willingly repented of their sin and willingly said no to the temporary or passing pleasures of sin. You can see Hebrews 11.25. So the same is true of the man of God today who remembers the sacrifice paid on his behalf. And remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.24 and 25. Remember the blood that was shed for you. Remember the body that was broken for you. So the point here is that the good works are evidence of a genuine saving faith in God and that those who are genuinely saved will live with God forever. Now we move to the next scenario. The wicked son of the righteous father. It says this, If he begets a son, this is the righteous father, if the righteous father begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, and does none of those duties, but is eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So, most likely, historically speaking, it's Manasseh it's referring to as an example. Hezekiah was a godly king, but his son Manasseh was the worst king ever. He was the most wicked king that the nation of Judah had ever had. And he chose not to follow his godly father's example. So, just quickly to go through list of character traits or sin. Did he participate in idol worship in the mountains? Yes. Did he lift up his eyes to idols? Yes. Was he sexually pure? No. Did he approach a woman during her impurity? Yes. Did he oppress anyone? Yes. Did he in mercy restore the pledge to the poor debtor? No. Did he rob anyone with violence? Yes. Did he take advantage of his countrymen by charging interest on loans? Yes. Did he withdraw his hand from sin? No. Did he execute true justice? No. So, what we do reflects what's inside. The unrighteous man is the opposite of the righteous man. Why? Because he doesn't love God and therefore is focused on living for himself without a care for God or others. And the conclusion, verse 13, Shall he then live? He shall not live. He had a great example to follow. Yeah, Awesome example to follow. Hezekiah was a great king, a righteous king. But his father's righteousness would not help him. He would have to answer for and be responsible for his own sin. 
And it says, He shall surely die, his blood shall be upon him. In other words, going back to the proverb, the wicked man ate the sour grapes and it will be his teeth that are set on edge, not his son's. So God is refuting that proverb. Now we come to the third scenario. The righteous grandson Josiah of the wicked father, Manasseh. So historically speaking, Josiah was an awesome king. He got rid of all the idols in all the land and he did a fantastic job doing his best to lead people back to the Lord, you know, getting the Passover restored and all those things. But he had the worst possible example of a father. So you see how God is using these examples to help us see that it doesn't matter about what your example was, it's your choice about how you go about your life, whether you trust God or not. Reading verse 14 to 18. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. See how God is refuting this proverb again? It's really simple. If this is referring to Josiah, Josiah is not going to be punished for the sins of his father Manasseh. Josiah was a godly king. He would not be punished for the sins of his father. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Personal responsibility. So verses 14 to 17. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. So free choice. And you know what? Growing up in a godly family is actually a slight disadvantage in one way. You know why? Because you don't get to experience the pain and suffering that sin brings. And so you grow up in this godly family and then you see people, you know, having fun with, you know, mucking around with alcohol and drugs and sex and all that kind of stuff. You think, oh, well, that looks like fun. They seem happy. But they don't know where that leads down the track. Whereas if you've grown up in one of those dysfunctional homes where all that's happening all around you, if you're wise, you'll be like Josiah and say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. I know where this leads. I know the broken relationships. Bali's, I'm out of here. So, verses 15 through 17, Ezekiel goes through the same list of examples. So, did he participate in idol worship on the mountains? No. Did he lift up his eyes to idols? No. Was he sexually pure? Yes. Did he approach a woman during her impurity? No. Did he oppress anyone? No. Did he in mercy restore the pledge to the poor debtor? Yes. Did he rob anyone with violence? No. Did he take advantage of his countrymen by charging interest on loans? No. Did he withdraw his hand from sin? Yes. Did he execute true justice? Yes. These are true for the King Josiah. And it should be true for us as well as men and women of God. 
verse 17 says, He shall not die for the iniquity of the Father. So why? Because God is just and fair, the righteous son will not suffer for the sins of the Father. And coming back to the proverb, because he didn't eat the sour grapes, he didn't sin, his teeth will not be set on edge, he will not be punished. And Deuteronomy 24.16 makes this very clear. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? But as for the father, and the opposite is also true, the righteousness of the godly son will not justify the wicked father. The wicked father would die for his own personal sins. The wicked father ate the sour grapes, sinned, and so his teeth will be set on edge. He will be punished. Now, I promised I'd come back to this whole idea of is this works-based salvation just by doing good things? Is it going to get you into heaven? Well, no, you're not. It's really important that we understand that we cannot and are not saved by doing good deeds or works. We must also be aware that a person who is truly saved, who has a living faith, they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, producing or creating in them the desire to love and obey God. And they will, at least to some degree, produce good works as a fruit of their salvation. So the person who is truly saved, who has a living faith, and we'll get into that as we get to James, as opposed to a dead faith, they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, producing and creating in them the desire to love and obey God. And that will result, to some degree, depending how much we respond to it, we will produce good works as a fruit of our salvation. Now, think about the Jews of Ezekiel's day. The Jews of Ezekiel's day were all very religious, and they trusted in the temple of God and its associated religious activities. But they were also very ungodly. So the people God is talking to are religious people, very religious people. They were still fully participating in temple worship. They trusted in the temple. There's other scriptures that show that to be true. And God says, you trust in the temple. Well, I'm going to take it away. So God has been showing them, and this is a key point here, God has been showing them that their actions betrayed or revealed the true condition of their hearts. They were hard and unrepentant. Religious activities are no substitute for a heart that is right with God. Okay? You can't just do religious things and that makes you a Christian. You need a heart that is right with God. It's the difference between eternal life with God and eternal death in the lake of fire. So I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures from the New Testament, one from Matthew where Jesus talks and one from James. And it shows this link between faith and action. Now, again, in Matthew 7, 21 through 27, is talking about religious people who are actively involved in religious activity. So listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and driven out demons in your name and done many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them openly, publicly, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you who act wickedly, disregarding my commands. So what's he saying? Your religious activities mean nothing if your way of life is evil. And Jesus continues. And you might not have linked these two sections of scripture together, but these are followed straight after each other. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, obeying them, will be like a sensible, prudent, practical, wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a stupid, foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great and complete was the fall of it. So straight after Jesus talks about those who you know, make a public confession of verbal confession, Lord, Lord, you know, they made a public confession of salvation, but their heart wasn't in it. It wasn't a true conversion. It was a false conversion. They were involved in religious activities, but they were not obeying the commands of God to show mercy, to love. Jesus says, you who act wickedly. It doesn't matter about your religious activities. It's what's your heart like and what fruit is coming from that. You know, it says in Corinthians, to examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Now let's go to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Now, before we read this, I'm going to go to verse 23 first. Because many people have problems with this section of scripture. But if you read 23 first, we'll see that it's no different to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He quotes the same scripture from Genesis. So it says this, And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So, what does James believe about becoming righteous? Is it through works or by faith? It's by faith. The example here is Abraham. Abraham did nothing to be counted as righteous. Yeah. Now, I want to just go through and look at all the times the word show or shown is used. So, for example, in verse 14, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of dead faith save anyone? Verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it, faith, produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Looking at this word show again. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. And then down to verse 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? His actions demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. Yeah, He was shown to be right with God. So did his works save him, or did his works just reveal what was already in his heart? 
They just revealed what was already there. So this is why good works are really important because if they come from a heart which is right, which loves God, it will produce these works naturally. Verse 24, So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. In verse 25, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions. Pretty cool, eh? So that's what it's all about. God looks at the outside of the person's life in Ezekiel chapter 18 and says, this person is bearing fruit. This person loves me. This person has a relationship with me. This person is bearing fruit. So let's read James 2, 14 through 26, and we won't stop. We'll just read it straight through, and you'll get the big picture. So what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of dead faith save anyone? And the answer is? The answer is no. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Nothing. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it, faith, produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Remember, there's living faith and dead faith, yeah? Now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Verse 19 is key. This shows the difference between dead faith and living faith. Okay. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you! Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is dead or useless? So even demons have faith. They have faith that God exists. They have faith in their reality of God's existence. But that's not saving faith, is it? It's dead faith. It's not going to produce life. Verse 21, Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? His actions demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete or mature or perfect. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say. And here James goes right back to the basics. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, this is the conclusion, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Verse 25, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. And verse 26 is a great illustration. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So if I'm not breathing, my body is dead. You can tell my body is dead if I'm not breathing, yeah? Well, if I'm not producing good works, it means I don't have faith in God. In the same way, like my body, if it's not breathing, you know I'm physically dead. If I'm not producing good works, then you know there's no 
Holy Spirit living in me, producing those good works. Does that make sense? So as we've been through Ezekiel 18, keep that in mind. It's not about just doing good works to be good enough to get into heaven. It's about, okay, well, this person, Josiah and Hezekiah, if you look at the examples, they loved God. They set their hearts to follow God. They had a relationship with God. And so historically speaking, that's what motivated them to obey God. So keep that in mind. Father, thank you for today's passage that we're reading. Lord, we are all personally accountable. Help us to remember that we can't do these things on our own strength. Lord, we want to submit to you. We want to surrender to you. And Lord, we know that it's a journey that we're on. We're not going to be perfect right from day one. We're all going to take time to mature, to grow. Help us to be willing to allow you to change us and as we read today, be willing to repent, to turn away from sin. That's a characteristic of a man of God, a woman of God, being willing to consistently turn away from sin. And we'll grow more and more in the area of producing fruits, the fruits of righteousness. So we thank you for what you're doing in through us, Father. We just pray that you'll help us to save ourselves some pain by choosing to repent more and to obey more in response to your goodness demonstrated toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.